Her sermon passage this morning continues on her sermon series in Gospel of John. We're picking up here at the beginning of chapter 9. And you'll see it's printed for you in your bulletin. We're um, on the app if you're using that. Or you can also turn there. We'll be in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This morning. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as, as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, watch and pull the sin on. This word means sin. So the man went and washed and came home to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we have a revelation of who you are. Because we can see who you are, we can see who we are in you. So this morning, as we look at these verses, we reflect on what it means show to us Jesus, that our hearts might love him all the more. Show to us his glory and his beauty and his majesty. Move us his kindness. Move us toward him to renew us and make us love him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a whole lot going on in this chapter as a whole. And we're actually going to be in John 9 next week as well. And we'll follow up to what happens here. Because it's this big dramatic scene. It's almost like a movie scene. In this chapter, uh, John 9, we have this man being healed who's been blind from birth. Maybe the most dramatic thing that Jesus has done so far in the Gospel of John. And after this, there's the opposition of religious leaders who cannot stomach that the grace of Jesus is there and they can't harness it, they can't control it. And they can't stand the threat in their mind that Jesus stands to their power. And then there's Jesus talking about blindness that isn't just physical, or blindness that's embodied in the religious leaders. But this morning, I want to look at this passage mostly from the question that the disciples asked in verse 2. The question that they asked at the beginning of this passage, the question I think that touches all of us, is the question of suffering and evil in our world. The question of why. Why? The disciples asked this question, you can see it there in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or parents that he was born blind. They want answers. They want answers to this intellectual issue that is met their mind. And Jesus gives them a sort of answer. But more importantly, in this passage, we see Jesus not just giving an answer to their question, he gives action. In the face of suffering, Jesus reveals a God that does not remain far off, that does not remain aloof. He remains, he, he, he reveals a mysterious God whose frustrating times are He calls us to struggle with believing his goodness, but nonetheless, a God that acts in the face of suffering. So let's look at it together. We're going to break this passage up in a couple of different sections, and the first one is this, the question. In verse 1, we are told that Jesus sees 
the man has been blind from birth. Now, later in this passage, verses that we did read, we find out in verse 8 that this man is a beggar. So he's profoundly poor. In verse 20, later on, we see that at best he has a troubled relationship with his family. His parents actually disowned him, in a sense, later on in this passage. Though admit that he's their son, but under the question of the religious leaders who are opposing Jesus, they want to distance themselves as much as they can. So the picture of this man here is not a guy who's just sitting there and Jesus walks up to him. This is a man who's profoundly disabled. An animal is a man who can work. And this is a man, for all intents and purposes, who is profoundly alone. Now I want to know that so far in the Gospel of John, that the movement we so often see of Jesus in relation to people who are on the fringes is them seeking them out. You read through the Gospel of John. Jesus seeks out a woman who is shamed by her community because she's been used up by every man in her life as married to John Ford. Jesus seeks out a man who has been uh, invalid for 38 years in Jerusalem in John 5. Jesus seeks out these people. He goes to them and here he does it again and again. The, Jesus, the text points out that Jesus sees the disciples see him too, so they ask a question we can understand. Here they see this man, they see his affliction, they see his suffering, and they're trying to make sense of it. It's what we all do in the face of suffering. So they ask, who, who sinned to make this happen? The disciples, like all of us, they want to make sense of the world. They're trying to make it fit. Before we get to Jesus' answer and to his action, I want to stop and consider this question for a moment, because it's a question we've all had. If not in the face of others suffering around us, in the face of our own suffering. Something goes wrong and we say, what did I do to cause this to happen? What did I do wrong? I know it's true of me, the deepest experiences of pain I've had in my life have always led to me to ask that question. And I think we ask that question because we want it to be true. We want to think that we live in a world where we always get what we do. That we're always kind of Because I think 
we think we can make sense of it, it won't hurt that. We can make sense of it, making something click in our heads and it won't live in our heart with the heaviness that it does. Now I want to undermine the reality of our question. The invitation we have from God is to come to Him with our myths and even our complaints. It's what we did this morning, guided by His Word in Psalm 13. And that certainly means lamenting in the face not only of our own suffering, but the suffering of others as well. And we have the assurance in the gospel that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, and in the midst of our suffering, that we can't measure up and make sense of it, we can cry out and go through the face and bear it like it's a good thing. But I think it's good for us to pause and consider what if we stop trying to draw the lines and explain our suffering? What if we stop trying to make room for it in this world? Because the truth is, evil and suffering in this world is what is not supposed to be. It's chaotic by nature. It does not belong in God's good creation. It does not. And insofar as us trying to ask questions to explain it is making a room for it, what if we give that up? What if we say suffering and evil, that is disorder in creation? What if we stop trying to understand it as much as we protest it? We don't need protest to carry some. What if we live lives that range against the reality of suffering in our world? What if we say, evil and suffering have no rightful place here, there's no home in God's good creation? Stop trying to make room for it in our minds. After all, our hearts tell us that suffering and death can be more alone, or think this is good, a good place to trust that. Now, this doesn't mean that we step back and close our eyes. I don't mean that we stare into suffering and evil, the reality of it in our communities, in our hearts, in our families, and we say, well, I'm not going to engage that. That's not what I mean at all. That's not what Jesus is saying to But what if we saw the reality of suffering and evil in our communities, in our hearts, in our families, and the reality of suffering in others, not as a word problem to solve, No, that doesn't mean we stand back and close our eyes, as I said. And in the face of suffering, we can't take steps to try to understand the sources of suffering so as to alleviate it. For instance, I think many of the conversations around social justice that have sprung up in the last decade have led to some good questions, some deep and rich and good conversations. And I think it, it does well to ask, okay, what are the sources of suffering? What can compound suffering at the time for people? Now he's coming, no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light. 
Now, this answer may seem a little bit confusing. What is Jesus saying? Well, first he addresses their question directly. They want to trace the line of this man's suffering to pay back either to him or to his parents. They see his suffering and they want it to be, in a sense, a paycheck that he had come into him or his parents had come into him. But Jesus closes that door. Jesus closes that door to them. Because more often than not, the drawing that line is a useless exercise. I think Jesus is saying our first question in the face of suffering is not to try to figure out that person who deserves it. Because in essence, that's what the disciples are asking. We see this man suffering, but does he have to come into it? What if our first question instead is, what can I do to help? How can I shine the light of God's love right here? I think that's what Jesus is saying to them. This man's suffering is not for you to try to figure out and make it fit. This man's suffering is an opportunity right now for grace. As Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me. The works of him who sent me. Jesus has used this language before in the Gospel of John. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 8, he had said that the Pharisees had proven themselves to be sons of Satan because they did the deeds of murder and lying. Remember, we talked about that last week. And here Jesus talks about his disciples doing the works of God. And what are those works? We see what Jesus does here. He heals this man. In the face of his suffering, Jesus heals this man. It's alleviation of his suffering. Jesus is saying to them, Imagine the scene. They're walking around with Jesus who they've seen feed 5,000 people. They're walking around with Jesus who they've seen heal many numbers of people. And they see this suffering. And instead of saying, Jesus, let's see your power and work right here in this man's life, they say, This guy's hurt. This guy had a problem. Jesus is saying, You've seen my power and work. You want to discuss this man's pain as if it's an abstract instead of addressing it. In other words, right now is an opportunity to be good to this person, this man. It is not a time to argue if he had, had it coming to Then Jesus speaks about the night of That language in the Gospel of John is Jesus anticipating his death. He's saying to them, this right now is the moment for us to show mercy to this man. Something is coming to try to extinguish the light of the world. Something that, in a sense, will succeed. In fact, that light harvest thing is very interesting. Later on in John, when they're in the uh, upper limit, they're celebrating the last Passover, the night before Jesus dies. And when Jesus leaves their uh, gathering to go and tell the, the, the authorities where Jesus is, John makes the point that it was night. We don't see the lights again until the morning of the resurrection at dawn. So Jesus, when he's talking about my coming, he's saying, my death is coming. Something profoundly troubling is coming. We'll talk about that in a second. So Jesus answers their questions, they're not by sidestepping, but by bringing them up to speed on the moment that they're in. It is not their place to parse out thought here. It is their place in that moment, right there, with the suffering of this being in front of them, to address it with the light of God's mercy. And then Jesus does just that. In one of the absolute strangest miracles that Jesus does, he addresses his sins suffering. And that brings us to our third section of action. The action. Notice, Jesus spits in the dirt, 
He makes mud out of it. He puts it on the man's eyes. And he sends him to a pool to wash. Now we have some medical professionals in our church, and I don't think that that is what you learn to spit and make dirt as a salve to put on blind eyes and send them to a pool to wash. It's not, it's strange. And it's supposed to be strange. You're not supposed to read this and say, Jesus did something that really made sense here. Not at all. And notice Jesus doesn't explain what he's doing. I think in the face of our suffering and bringing healing to us, God often works in a mysterious way. But I think God knows a few things. And, and this is what I think may be going on here. Jesus interacting with this dust and saliva making mud. In the Old Testament, it's ceremonial. So if you go back and read like in Leviticus, it's talking about worship at the tabernacle. It also talks about all kinds of, the, the priests in the Old Testament were kind of a mixture of, of, they were kind of pastors and they were also kind of physicians. Like they, you went to the priest when you had an illness, you couldn't be in a home. And they talk about being clean and unclean, defying diseases and all that thing. And there were all kinds of precautions around the season, especially diseases that were easily spread. There were rules about quarantines, and there were specific rules surrounding bodily fluids. And I'll be gross this morning, but that's what it was. There were rules all about, like, if you had a, a discharge, you needed to separate for X amount of days, and you needed to do this and that and this. If you were unclean, anything you touched, anything your saliva touched, anything you touched at all was unclean. Or seen as unclean. And so you radiated uncleanness or disease. But what we see in Jesus, I think we might just remember, what we see in Jesus is the opposite. All throughout the gospel, it goes to places he shouldn't go. Occasionally he goes to places that technically shouldn't get unclean. He touches people he shouldn't touch. Thank you. 
passage isn't this big story that stops here. As Jesus spoke at the night of his coming, he was speaking of his death. Where he would just get dirty making some mud, but where he would pour out his life to do the work that the Father had sent him to do. Not just to show us some kindness in the midst of suffering, but to bring us reconciliation with God that we might not be trapped by the darkness of sin, whether the sins we've committed or the sins that have been committed against us. Later on, the extinguishing of God's light shining into this world becomes the victory over death, the victory over suffering. Because in His death, Jesus swallows up the power of death. In His suffering, He's gutted it of its ultimate power. In the face of evil and suffering, Jesus doesn't just give answer. He doesn't just give an answer to our questions of why. Because our hope and our salvation isn't founded on being able to answer the question of why. What if we got an answer to our question of why? We might intellectually know that it would still be there. The suffering would still exist. We would just have a better idea of it. Our hope and our salvation is not found in that answer is found in divine solidarity. It's found in God coming to join us in this, to descend into our suffering, to take it on Himself, and to be lifted up and bring us with Him. As I said earlier, suffering is not something to be reconciled to, it's something to rage against, and that's just what God does in the historical scandal of Him putting on flesh and Jesus the immortal becoming immortal, the infinite becoming finite, taking on the evil of our world to Himself to of its power, the death of death. In the face of our suffering, God doesn't give us just an answer, He gives us Himself. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this, the, the things we talk about in this passage? I want to throw out some thoughts. The first is this, in the face of the suffering of love, it's easy to be the disciples. It's easy to see the suffering of others and say, did this guy have a coming to him? Did his family do something dumb that had bad coming to them? Friends, the suffering of others is not an opportunity for us to parse out whether or not they have coming. Because people are not problems to be solved. Human beings created in the image and likeness of God, broken yet beautiful, are not problems to be solved. They're people to be loved. They're people to be loved. Every time we see the effects of sin, every time we see suffering in front of us, it is a tragedy. It is a profound tragedy because we are seeing the marring of God's image with the inherent dignity of God. People are not a problem. But the suffering of others, insofar as we have the ability to, is an opportunity for us to shine in the midst of that darkness with the light of Jesus. The suffering of others is not a problem to be solved. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to follow Jesus into their suffering. What about our own suffering? You know, sometimes we can... In the midst of all suffering, we're going to say, we say platitudes like everything happens for a reason, God has a plan, etc., etc. 
And sometimes I think when we get caught in there and we want to, it's a desire to get the suffering over really quick. And we want to get to the other side so we can look back and say, oh, but that's over. What if we instead realize, as I talked about earlier, that suffering is not something we can thank God for? Sometimes we can talk about faith like that's what it is. Everything happens for a reason, so that everything that happens to me must be good, right? Something's happening from the Lord. No, not at all. And I can't tell you this morning why suffering happens. There's a multitude of reasons. And I can't tell you all of them. But I can't tell you that suffering is something that Jesus came to destroy. It's something that Jesus came to put an end to, to put a period on the end of the sentence of our suffering. And I can tell you that God works to bend the suffering and evil of this world to his purposes, but that in doing that, he doesn't make the suffering good.
Father, I thank you that we have the promise in your presence in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our world. That you descended to become one of us, not just as an explanation to see what it was like, but Lord, you came here to take on to ourselves the worst parts of our world, to destroy the power of sin and death, and in the victory of your resurrection, give us the promise of new life. So encourage us, Lord. We who still toil in the world and have so much suffering in it. Not to treat the pain of others as a math problem we solve. Not to treat our own suffering as something that we we grin and bear. But train us, Lord, to be people who in the midst of the darkness of this world shine your light. Even when we don't have answers to all of our questions, to shine the light of your grace. Because you've shown us your intention. And print that on our hearts, God. And we might abound in hope. Even as we walk.